So I don't know if you've ever gone out to eat and then on your drive home um, thought to yourself, I could eat because the meal that you just had wasn't very fulfilling. Uh, it's possible to feed and not be filled. And um, some of you might be thinking, Paul, I know where you're going with this because you are a simpleton and it's called fine dining. And I understand that and I'm not advocating that when we go out to eat, uh, we should just pull up to a huge feeding trough and that's what the experience should be. I understand fine dining, but there is a difference between fine dining and fool's dining. Fine dining is like a beautiful experience and the aesthetic is wonderful and the food is, be is beautiful and the, and the presentation is, is amazing. You know, that's fine dining, you know, these smaller portions, I understand that. Fool's dining is when you say, you know, can you go through the menu specials and they say something that sounds uh, like, yes, uh, our special today is a single leaf that was plucked from a sapling on the peak of Mount Olympus, which was nourished by unicorn tears and uh, has been drizzled with the juice ringed from uh, the wings of a cupid, you know. And for dessert, a single orange peel marinated in regret. That would be $666. You know, that fool's dining where you're like, what am I eating right now? And then on the way home, you turn to your friend or your spouse and you're like, let's get a burger because I'm starving. Our text for today is Proverbs chapter 9, where we are introduced to two meals. This text is like the beginning of Proverbs 9 is like the tale of two meals. Wisdom's feast and the feast of fools. And the real question that this passage is provoking is, which meal appeals to us more? Which meal, wisdom or foolishness, do we find more attractive? Because it's possible to feed and be filled. So the question is, where are we feeding? And, and is what we are feeding on satisfying our hunger or leaving us in hunger? Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She slaughtered her beasts and prepared her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the ways of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer is himself abused. And those who correct a wicked man incur injury. Do not correct a scoffer or he will hate you. Correct a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you're wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman of folly is loud. She is seductive and she knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat in the highest places of town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and the bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are in there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is God's word. So here in Proverbs 9, this presentation of wisdom and foolishness, two 
competing dinner invitations. Lady Wisdom and Lady Foolishness, both crying out, both saying, turn in here. And we're all RSVPing to one of these dinners. We all are. Think about how difficult it is for a North American to RSVP to something. We're like, I'm not sure I can commit. Something else more attractive might come up. We have difficulty with RSVPs. But to these dinners of wisdom and foolishness, all of us are making an RSVP. Now, <clears throat> wisdom, first off, uh, is not an abstract thing that guides us. Wisdom, and you see it again here, portrayed through Lady Wisdom, uh, through, personified in a woman, Lady Wisdom. Wisdom is not a, 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 an abstract thing. It's a person. Wisdom is a person who's creating a table of dwelling for us, preparing a soul-nourishing meal for us, extending an invitation to feed us, extending an invitation to fulfill us. Right? This is the uh, considerations of this wisdom is who is guiding our life? Who are the voices that are in our heads? Who do we listen to when we come to that fork in the road and a decision needs to be made? Who are we uh, considering when um, difficult decisions around ethics or or, uh, hot points of conversation in today's culture are on the table? Who are we listening to? Wisdom is a person. So as we consider walking in the ways of wisdom, we are, of course, doing this as the children of God, resting in God's grace, saved by the grace of Christ alone, and our union with Christ has implications. Being united with Christ means... (laughs) That the goodness of Jesus, who he is by nature, seeps into us by the power of the Spirit through that union. And we are declared righteous, of course, by grace. We're not righteous of our own. But we desire this life of wisdom as a result of that union. So for those of you who may be new to the scriptures or you tuned in this morning and you're exploring uh, Christian faith, what you need to know is that becoming a person of wisdom, the scripture says, begins with being a person of worship. You cannot be a person of wisdom, as God would define wisdom, unless you are first a person of worship. Because the desire to have your life guided in the ways of God flows from love for God. Which is why we want to be people of worship. Which is why as I look out on this sea of young faces, these young families and children, we want to teach our children to be people of worship. Because from that they become people of wisdom. And so wisdom, we know, is taking principles and precepts and then bringing them down to earth. Well, Jesus is wisdom personified who came to earth. Wisdom is taking a wise idea and walking it out in reality. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God personified because as he came to earth, he walked out personified the wisdom of God in reality. And so as you look at the way that Jesus engaged the culture, you see wisdom. The poor, the oppressed, the refugee, wisdom. The self-righteous religious people, wisdom calling people out of their own ways to his truths, wisdom. The love that he had for his enemies, wisdom. Jesus is this wisdom personified. So this morning as we consider our union with Christ, the grace that we enjoy, having all of our sin forgiven, let us be guided by wisdom. We're going to look at three things from this text. Of course, there's many more, but being me, we're going to look at three. Um, The first one is that we feed on what appeals to our appetites. The second thing is that the spirit and the word reform our appetites. And then thirdly, uh, as the alignment of our appetite to God's wisdom increases, contentment increases. So let's look at the first thing. We feed on what appeals to our appetites. Certain things appeal to you, certain things don't. I am a person who would never order fish off of a menu. 
it's not does not appeal. You doesn't matter what it is. It's interesting that sometimes people, you know, try and sell fish by saying it's not fishy, which is the one thing fish is supposed to be. Try it. It's not fishy. Uh, if you told me that the fish came with a fifty dollar bill, I'd probably still say no. It's just not appealing. Wisdom, uh, as we see here, as we look at these two meals, they they are. They are chased after by the simple people. They are chased after by the fools simply be, precisely because they're attractive to them. And so you've got virtue and vice. And when you look at verse 1, it says that wisdom has built her house. Um, it's, her house has seven pillars. Consider this poetry for a moment. In the ancient world, how many houses do you think had seven pillars? The answer is zero. By modern standards, how many of your houses have seven pillars? If a place has seven pillars... It's a palace or it's a temple. So it starts up by saying, wisdom has built her house. And her house is a place of incredible stability. It's a place fit for a king, fit for a priest. Does that make you think of anybody? So she has built this place, this life of stability, where we are invited into this place of, of, of stability. And uh, as we consider what the meals are being offered, look at the meal being offered by Lady Wisdom and the meal offered by the foolish woman. One is meat and wine. One is bread and water. To have your life guided by the wisdom of God's word, it's like filling your soul with choice meat and fine wine. To live your life guided by anybody who contradicts God's word is like starving your soul on bread and water. So which meal is more appealing to us? Is it wisdom's feast or is it the feast of fools? When you look at verse 17, we're provoked to kind of hear how any words that contradict God's words are in and themselves empty and foolish. It's a, for example, l- listen to uh, the foolish woman. Uh, she says, stolen water is sweet. It is. Water tastes like nothing. In the ancient world, Tastes like warm nothing. So how does stealing water make it sweet? Oh, it's sweet. It's room temperature. It tastes like room temperature nothing. Look at the next thing she says. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant? Is bread eaten in open present? Isn't bread eaten anywhere pleasant? See, what's being sold here is the forbidden. Hey, if God says... This thing is wrong. It is a sweet thing. He is holding out. He is a cosmic killjoy. You cannot have your life guided by his word because it's gonna, you're going to be truncated and narrow and squashed and you're going to be missing out. You can't trust God's word. You have to live by your own word. Does, does that remind you of anything? Does this idea of selling the idea that God is holding out remind us of anything? Is this idea that, oh, God said that'll kill you? Well, I'm telling you, it's going to enlighten you. This is, this is recalling Genesis 3. This is the original sin. This, at the core of the meal, baked into the feast of fools, is the idea that to listen to the word of God is ridiculous, and so therefore live, live by your own word and make yourself God. And so this language is provoking us to ask ourselves the question, is living my life according to what God says is right appealing or is living my life according to what I say is right more appealing the stolen water the bread in secret uh, this is a callback uh, theologians say the stolen water is a callback to 
Proverbs 5, where there's a, it's a euphemism for illicit sex. So there are many, many applications for this text where you can think about whose voices am I listening to. But let's just go with the one Solomon gives us and talk for just a quick moment about the idea of illicit sex. Because that's what he does here. Because Solomon himself, the author of this uh, wisdom literature, he went wheels off with illicit sex. And so he has a lot to say about it because by filling his life with sex whenever he wanted, however he wanted, with whoever he wanted, led to this tremendous darkness, led to emptiness. You read through Ecclesiastes, this guy is crashing and burning existentially. Uh, it's dark and morbid because the very thing that he thinks is going to kind of fulfill him and release him, it ends up uh, sort of crushing and debilitating de and imprisoning him. So let's look at this for a quick moment, the practical application of God's wisdom and purpose for sexual relations. Um, God gave, has given sexual, re, re, uh, sexual relations to live inside the covenant of marriage. God is a God of covenant and marriage is a covenant. Covenant means an ongoing commitment and promise to love. Covenant means I'm not just promising I'll love you right now. I'm promising I will love you in the future. The future hasn't happened yet. I don't know what you're going to do in the future. You may let me down and fail miserably in the future, but my covenant promise today means I will love you then. So what God did was he said, sexual relations is going to live in this covenant between a man and a woman. And that is going to be a picture, an image of my covenant love for you, of my gospel, that you may fail and fail and fail and fail me time and time again, but I will remain committed to you. So what God, God's sexual ethics are, it's, sex is going to live there. Now, how does that idea of sexual relations living within the confines of a covenant commitment in marriage between a husband and a wife, how does that square with uh, ideas about sexuality in our culture today? It doesn't. It doesn't square at all. It can't be rec reconciled at all. So what then do we do about this? How do we consider this? How do we do this? Well, we realize that if sex is to live in this sort of serving, giving, self-emptying, constantly forgiving, for those of you who are marriage, married, you know, marriage is a lifelong commitment to forgiveness because you married a sinner and P.S. you are one too. So if sex is supposed to live in this place of covenant commitment, what do I do as a single person? Or what do I do if I'm a, a Christian and I am... Uh, uh, a single heterosexual or I'm perhaps I'm single and I identify my my uh, sexual attraction is homosexual what do I do with this well what we do with it is we realize that if that's where sex is supposed to live in this the confines of a, of one kind of relationship then sexuality does not define you as a person sexuality cannot define you as a person because it is far too small to define you as a person it is one aspect of who you are it is an important aspect of who you are it tells you beautiful things about who you are but it is not who you are and not only that but sexuality therefore cannot be the means of fulfillment it cannot be the means of a fulfilling life what if you're what if you're a person who has um incredible uh, mental or physical disability and sex is not possible. Does this mean you're less of a person or does this mean you live an unfulfilled life because your mental or physical dehabilitation makes you incapable of having sex? No, of course not because sexuality does not define you as a person. What does it, what, what does it mean uh, in this context? It means that as we allow the wisdom of God's word to define us, we realize 
sexuality, contrary to the culture, where a culture would say that is who I am as a person, and unless I am actually acting on it, then I'm not being fulfilled as a person or something's being withheld. What we see is the wisdom of God, it, doesn't, it, does, it can't be reconciled with the culture. It's something totally other than the culture. And so the question then is, which course of action will be more attractive for you, church? Which course of action? Will you love your neighbor regardless of their views on sexuality? Love the people who worship at Redeemer regardless of, uh, of their struggles or their views of sexuality? Will you do that? <clears throat> Will you uh, love your neighbor regardless of their views while being personally guided by God's word and matters of sexuality? Is that attractive to you? Or will you bend your knee to the words of the culture on sexuality, adopt and import the ideas of the culture as it relates to sexuality, which is more attractive? See, because as we look at the life of Jesus, what we realize is it is entirely possible for us to love those who do not share our convictions while not abandoning our convictions. Jesus was having dinner all the time with people that did not share his convictions, did not share his truth. And he loved them and he cared for them, but he was not uh, influenced by them. But yet he, he loved and cared for them. We see this clearly in the life of Jesus. He didn't abandon his convictions and Jesus went to the cross in such love that he died for those who did not share his convictions. So it is possible and we are actually called in this text, specifically at this imagery of stolen water to say, actually, I, I ought not to have allow uh, somebody else's words uh, guide and direct me in this way, but rather have God's words guide and direct me in this way and teach my children um, accordingly so that they can be loving, caring people in this city, even though their view of sexuality is not going to be congru congruent with our culture's uh, shifting views on sexuality, but we can give dignity and love nonetheless. So, this passage is having us consider whose words are feeding, whose words are forming, whose words are fulfilling. And so as we look at the, the second thing this morning, uh, it's that the spirit and the word reform our appetites. So firstly, we're moving towards what's most attractive to our appetite. And then secondly, the spirit and the word, they reform our appetite. So both wisdom and foolishness are being shouted from high places. Notice that in this text. Lady Wisdom, verse 3 She's sending her evangelists. She's sending these young women to the rooftops, high places. Look at verse 14. The foolish woman in town shouting from the high places. Both are shouting from high places. What does this look like practically? How has lady wisdom, how has the wisdom of God been announced from high places? Well, in the immediate context of this passage, they've got Israel's history and a host of miracles that the entire world knew about. The, ch the children of God would travel to other countries and those nations, you know, the Canaanite woman, we heard about you guys, they get to Jericho, we heard about you guys. The miracles of God were widespread, they were global, it was not a secret, everybody knew about the God of the slaves that had saved them out of Egypt. So from, from the high places in the immediate context of this text, you've got history of Israel. But what does it mean for us on this side of the cross? As we consider, what does it mean that God has declared his wisdom from the high places? A couple weeks ago, Nigel and I go and hang out with uh, my brother and, uh, and Kathy, and we're outside on the lawn, and we're looking through this massive telescope, and uh, Nelson locates Jupiter and Saturn, and we're looking at Jupiter and Saturn through a telescope. 
wow, we're so amazed. God has announced his wisdom throughout all of creation. Whether you look at the universe that we live in through a telescope or a microscope, the mind-boggling precision that enables life to exist on planet Earth on a cosmic level is utterly staggering. God has written, his fingerprints are throughout the cosmos. In 1988, when Stephen Hawking wrote a book called um, uh, A Brief History of Time, Hawking said in his book, even if you could reduce the, um, the, our understanding of the universe to equations, the question will still remain what breathes fire into those equations. And then Hawking goes on to say, um, call it God, if you will. It's not that Hawking believed in God, but Hawking at least had the, the, the intellect to understand even if the universe could be explained by equations, you're still left with the philosophical problem, which is why are we here? And Hawking said, call that, call that God, if you will. So God's fingerprints are throughout the cosmos. If you go for a walk and you find a turtle on a fence post, you got to have the sense to know that it didn't get there by, by itself. And we are all turtles on fence posts, scientifically, as you look at the universe with which we live, the mind-boggling precision and intelligence that points to this God who has created all things. It is not difficult to see the fingerprints of God unless you're fundamentally opposed to the implications of finding those fingerprints, which is why Romans says that all creation declares his name. And so even beyond God declaring his wisdom in the cosmos, as he came in Christ and he walked this earth and he lived and he died and he rose again, the Apostle Paul said to two historical leaders, uh, Felix Festus and Agrippa, he said to them after the resurrection of Christ, he said, these things are not, were not done in a corner. In other words, the foundation of Christian faith is not a missing body. It's a resurrected body that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people saw. So we're not dealing with a missing body. The wisdom of God is shown in the resurrected Christ and in the sense that he's saying, I am the God that has created all things. I am the God who will restore all things. I have come in the scandalous love to save you from your sin. Trust in me, turn to me, and therefore, if the resurrected Christ is true and we believe that it is and God is, and Jesus is who he says he was, which is God he is, then the, the wisest thing to do are to listen to those words and allow those words to uh, guide and lead and govern our lives. And that is, I think, important. If the, science, if the scientists are correct and the universe is somewhere around 16 billion years old and we only live for 80 years, you know, uh, we kind of have the, the, the life expectancy of fruit flies, cosmically speaking, then the wisest thing we can do is to trust in this great God. And so that is how wisdom has shouted from the high places. You can look at the world. You can look at creation. You can look at history and ask yourself why thousands and thousands and thousands of intelligent Greeks and Romans and Jews overnight abandoned their worldview and began to worship Jesus Christ and why Christianity wasn't laughed out of Rome, but why it spread through Rome. We can ask those things. So now, what about Lady, Wisdom, uh, Lady Foolishness? How is she shouting from the high places? I want you to draw your attention to something in the text. In verse 14, it says that the foolish woman, the, the words of foolishness, they're coming from a seat. And that's very interesting. It says she takes a seat in the highest places in town. In the Hebrew, seat, kaseh. It was like a throne, a place of prominence. And you and I, we just read by that, oh, she took a seat. That's because we have chairs all around our houses. In the ancient world, they didn't have chairs. You didn't have chairs. The only people who had chairs were kings 
and, and people of radical prominence in the city, they got chairs. Nobody had chairs. You can go to many places in the world today and they still don't have chairs. They're like, we're not going to take up space in our tiny little home with a chair. We all sit on the floor and have dinner together. The, much of the world is still like that. So here's what you need to see. Here's how foolishness shouts in the city. They sit in, they sit in prominent seats. And they say things from prominence that simple people, simple fools, the simple fool willing to listen to anybody says, well, you got to listen to them. Listen, look at how prominent they are. Ooh, they got a chair. <laughs> Whoa. Well, they're the, well, they're, they're, they're the MP. They're the, they're the um, premier. They're the prime minister. I mean, that's a pretty prominent chair. They're people like you and I. They were elected, elected by people like you and I. And they're in these prominent places and we can confuse prominence with wisdom and it's not the same prominence is not wisdom well after all they've got a million twitter followers well after all look how rich they are look at the house they live in they have to be wise they have so much money they're so they're so wealthy they've amassed huge wealth in in the business community Um, they're economic geniuses they must be wise that's all prominence it's prominence prominence does not equate to wisdom it can be and I'm not saying that you can't be a person of prominence and wisdom. Just notice what the text is getting us to see is that prominence is not wisdom. Just because somebody has a chair doesn't mean it's what they're wise. They can be, but if they open their mouth and say words that contradict God's words, those words by definition are foolishness. So we need wisdom to be able to parse out the things that we're hearing from the chairs of prominence. Right? For example, think of a, a prominent politician who is incredibly wise. And I'm going to mention, in this moment, Jacinda in New Zealand. Here we are in a global pandemic. And Jacinda made some decisions that were pretty wise. And I think we can all look at it as we're grappling with COVID in stage three. And uh, we can look at New Zealand and they're packing out the rugby stadiums. And can say, you know what? Hats off to you, Jacinda. You're a wise woman. You made some wise decisions. And, uh, and here, so wisdom. It's possible to be in a place of prominence and have intelligence and competency and, and of course, and also, and also be wise. But can you think of a politician <laughs> who's not wise? I want you to notice, yeah, Susan just laughed out loud. And you're laughing in your homes. I just can't hear you because you're on mute. Please stay on mute. Can you think of a politician who's not wise? I, I, I want you to notice that you're all thinking of someone or multiple people I haven't given you, I haven't led you one way or the other. I'm, I've just asked the question, can you think of a person who's not wise? And the moment I say that, can you think of a fool in politics? Can you think of a person in politics that you just think to yourself, every time this person opens their mouth, I am flabbergasted at the lack of common sense. Notice I'm not, I haven't mentioned any countries, I haven't mentioned a thing. I'm just asking if you can think of a fool and you're all picturing one. This is because this text is getting us to see you, prominence is not wisdom. It can be, but you and I need to, need to not be simple fools and allow for the culture to hand us our ethics, allow for the culture to hand us our ideologies or our children, but that we, in, in and as much as those in prominence echo words that are consistent uh, with the word of God, then we, we agree with those things. And in as much as those words do not, then we give dignity and respect and we are people of love in the city, but we are mindful and we live our lives in congruence with God's word and not just with uh, the words of the culture. 
So this is important. There's this little caveat in between these two dinner invites. Lady Wisdom is inviting. The Foolish Woman is inviting. And then in the middle, there's this little sidebar. You'll find it there. It's in, uh, where is it? It's in uh, verse, uh, verse 7, where it says, there's a certain kind of person who's not ready to feast on wisdom. And they're a scoffer. And uh, so you've got to delay their dinner invite because uh, they're not coming. In fact, if you try and correct a scoffer, it's going to be like trying to save a drowning cat and you're going to get injured. Injured bad. And so what is this telling us? A scoffer, to be clear, a scoffer is not simply a person who rejects God. Because you and I have lots of people in our lives who've rejected God, but they are still you know, kind and caring people uh, in the city and they're trying to um, be good citizens. That's not a scoffer, not just someone who rejects God. A scoffer is someone who is hostile towards anyone who does love God. So you get the sentence halfway out your mouth and the scoffer is literally, it's like onomatopoeia. <laughs> you can't even finish your sentence. They're, they've written you off. Well, you're, I mean, you believe in the divine, so let's, let's just establish right now you're a fool. The text just says, you know, just you need to wait for a better opportunity. You can't talk to that person. You can't reason with that person. Um, they're going to fight you to the death to defend their words. It's all over. Jesus made use of that wisdom when he said, don't cast your pearls before swine. Right? Which is why we just have to be kind of read the room and know, know the audience and know who we're talking to and exercise wisdom. And that's why Lady Wisdom says in verse 6, leave your simple ways, walk in my insight. That's a big ask. It's a big ask to say leave your simple ways because the simple person just listens to people of prominence and that's how they get their information. And wisdom says, no, actually you need to leave that way of attaining wisdom and allow for the word of God to feed and nourish you and... and uh, and your union with Christ over the course of your life and time to make you wise and, and make your children wise. And so that's why the scoffer, they say, stay away. But then by contrast, the wise person who is unlike the scoffer, they actually increase in wisdom and learning. And so we need to re- realize at this point that we don't just read the Bible, and I've said this many times, but the Bible reads us. And so that means you don't just go, mm, who can I think of a scoffer in my life? Man, they're a real scoffer. Okay, that's kind of the easy part. The hard part is go, am I a scoffer? Can I be a scoffer? Are there times when the wisdom of God is brought to bear in a way that I am relating or acting or thinking or speaking or you know, conducting business or marriage or relationships or friendships and when the wisdom is brought to me, I scoff at it? We need to allow the word of God also to read us so that we can be like these wise people who when correction comes, we're actually made wiser still. And so I'm gonna uh, move on to the last thing and close with this. Um, after the spirit and the word reform our appetites, after we have given some serious thought to what is most attractive to our appetites, the last thing is, as the alignment of our appetite to God's wisdom increases, our contentment increases. And so we all know you're not supposed to go shopping when you're hungry because you make bad shopping decisions. And you're not supposed to make this, this text is saying, don't make decisions while you're hungry either because you're gonna make some bad decisions. What is feeding you? And where are you going to be fed? And so by God's grace, as we are united to Christ, our soul is being brought into a place of contentment because the one who created us recreates us. See, Lady Wisdom set a table and Jesus personified that wisdom. He is our Lord, our shepherd. 
who also sets a table, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall want nothing. But he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You set a table for me in the presence of my enemies. When nothing is good, when life is not good, you say, let's eat. You're feeding and feasting on the goodness of God and the wisdom of God. This is, I know I'm being, this is all soul language, but it's important for you and for your children. It's important because we all like sheep wander and we know we've wandered from God's goodness. And the way you know you've wandered from trusting in God, the way you know you're trusting in something much smaller than God is that you're discontent, you're hungry, you're constantly chronically hungry and you're going someplace to feed it. And over time, that, that discontent will become chronic discontent, chronic hunger if we feed in the wrong places because we'll be feasting at the fool's feast. And so if our soul is in discontent, there's never enough to fill us. But when our rest is in God's grace, we can become increasingly wise. Our relationships and our vocations, uh, we can become wise in our pursuit of education. We can become wise with all of these things. We can be wise with what we turn to for recreation precisely because we don't distort those things, making them the source of our contentment because in our union with Christ, our soul is quieted and we're already enjoying contentment. She has prepared the meat. She has fixed her wine. She has set her table. Come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Let's pray.